Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Marvel uh, of Strike, even the Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast with a British twist. I'm your host, Paul. Uh, sadly, it's just me tonight. Um, everybody else isn't available. Uh, Josh is revising for his exams. Craig's driving his train, and Tony's been at the other end of the country watching a football match, watching his team get get promoted to the next league. So today aren't available, but I'm not on my own. Uh, I am joined by a very special guest, someone that, if you listen to this After Dark, you'll know. Um, his own podcast, uh, The Disney Dish. Um, I'd like to welcome Mr. Jim Hill. Hey, good, good, good evening. I guess it is good evening, yes, Paul. I'm sorry, is. here in the States, it's... Still afternoon with dish plate snow sized snowflakes falling outside. So. Oh, we've oh. had we've had bright blue skies today, actually. Amazingly, for the UK, um, it's been nice, nice bright sunshine. Not overly warm, uh, but still nice enough that you could go out in probably just a light jacket, um, which is a bit early for us, actually. Just just coming into April, it's it's quite nice. Um, so I brought Jim on today. Uh, as you, as I said, you'll know him from guest starring on *This After Dark*. Um, you were on not even a couple of months ago, um, talking about what was coming to the Disney parks. Uh, Jim's known for his uh, his history of the Disney parks and in the entertainment industry. Um, I brought Jim on to kind of talk about where Marvel came from at the the end of the the late twentieth century, really, when they when things started to look on the bad side of things for, for Marvel. Um, so start with, as I said, when they, they started to, to lose money rapidly and started selling things off. What can you tell us about that, Jim? Well, I mean, it was a strange period for the company that, I mean, face it, there have been a lot of flush years in, um, the comic industry, you know, I mean, you know, all of us remember, you know, like the stunt issues of Batman being killed and that sort of thing, and how everybody, you know, uh, you know, went out and bought issues of of, of comic books because, of course, those are going to be worth you know hundreds of thousands of dollars someday, and it's like uh, that didn't happen. Um, Marvel, you know, I mean, Marvel got kind of got cut up during that period, and and in '98, I mean, it really did sort of teeter on the brink and you know what's kind of interesting is during this same period you know marvel sort of had this attitude of you know well whenever we're in trouble if somebody walks in the building with a you know a, a bag full of cash you know we sell off rights to things i mean you know as far back as 1985 canon came in and snag the rights for, you know, the film rights for Spider-Man. And, uh, you know, the problem is that they held them for years and just didn't know what to do with them. And, and you know, by the time 1990 rolls around, you know, they, these have been transferred to the 20th Century Fox. And what's really interesting to me, at least about, you know, that period is this was, you know, the guy at Fox who really wanted to do something with this was James Cameron. And, um, I, in fact, I was going to try to dig it out today. I've got a copy of the treatment that Cameron wrote for his Spider-Man movie. And unfortunately, you know, the, my, my, my basement is, is kind of like a recycling bin with shelves. Um, I, I will find it and share it at some point, but basically it, Cameron kept getting tripped up by the fact that what he wanted to do with Spider-Man 
just wasn't technically possible yet. And when you think about, you know, this is the guy who, you know, you know, for example, like the abyss with the, the water tentacle, uh, you know, CG character for that. Uh, you know, he just, he felt that, that the film special effects technology was just not where he wanted to be or wanted it to be to do a Spider-Man film. And that tripped up, you know, this project moving forward at Fox. Now, what's interesting is that while Spider-Man isn't going forward in, in 1994, Fox actually acquires the film rights to the X-Men. Uh, kind of the same thing. It's just, it's one of these situations where it's like, oh, okay, okay, we have this. What do we do with it? And I wasn't really till 1998 when Blade, uh, really the first of the box office successes for you know, based on a Marvel property happened. But that was New Line. And, you know, the interesting thing is that they kept, you know, they, they did the best they could to contain the costs of this of uh, this film. It, they, it, it, um, you know, it, and, and as a direct result, um, it, it didn't make huge bank. I mean, it only made $131 million worldwide, but because the production costs were down in the thirties and the forties, um, they were actually, you know, able to be successful And this. This got a lot of people's attention, which is why, um, you know, Columbia Pictures in now in, in a huge protracted uh, court fight, they finally liberate the Spider-Man film rights from Fox. And, uh, you know, so Columbia Pictures, which is the division of Sony, now begins working on its, um, you know, its Spider-Man movie. And but at the, during the same period, you have, uh, you know, the, the first X-Men movie by Brian Singer. Uh, comes out July of uh, 2000, and again because they'd kept the costs down. Uh, you know, again that this whole movie, this huge special effects driven film, because they had kind of a no name cast. I mean, the you know this is sort of the the film to introduce the world to, to, to Hugh Jackman, who obviously has made Wolverine an industry. You know, uh, for for 17 years now. Uh, but the biggest name of the cast, I mean, you had uh, Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen. Um, and, but because they kept the, the cost down, uh, you know, it made $157 million here in the States and then an additional 139 overseas, just shy of $300 million worldwide. And as far as Fox was concerned, that was a success. And, you know, let's make another one of those. And, you know, two years later... Uh, you know, we finally get the Spider-Man movie with Sam Remy and, uh, you know, that uh, they spent almost twice as much as, um, Fox. Uh, and again, this is so many Columbia doing this. They spent almost twice as much as Fox spent on, uh, special effects. Cause again, remember this was the thing Cameron felt unless you see Spider-Man, you know, sort of, you know, fly through the air, uh, on his web in, through the, the canyons of New York. No one's going to buy that movie. Um, but, again, so they, they brought it in for a $139 million budget. It, stateside alone, it made over $400 million. And uh, overseas, it made an additional $418 million, weighing in at over $800 million box office worldwide. And that was a blockbuster. I mean, that... You know, that sort of got the attention of the world, like, good Lord, there's there's big dough in these movies. Um, but, you know, the, the weird thing is the very next year, 
you know, we had Daredevil, and he, you know, here's Ben, you know, Ben Affleck, and, you know, the, 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 the in fact, uh, did you, uh, just to deviate here for a sec, did you see the new, uh, the, 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 um, the Justice League uh, trailer? Justice League trailer that dropped yeah, today. Uh, what did you think? Um, for all the talk that the tone was changing, I didn't mm-hmm. see much change in tone from the previous DC films. <sighs> yeah, you know that's uh, that uh, the, you know, and that's I, I forget who I was just talking with about this. That the challenge being that you know I mean, DC wants to be where Marvel is right now. You know, I mean, have people heavily invested in these these team up films, and you know, and then be able to step out and be invested in a Wonder Woman film or a stuff. You know, a you know a Flash film or that sort of thing, and it just. It, you know, it it's not, you know, it's not microwave popcorn. You have to actually earn a place at this table. In fact, that's for me what's fascinating about the whole Marvel story is that they watch this whole period of films in the, um, in the you know in the two thousands. You know, the the the, the X Men, the the Spider Men, and you know, and they just get this sense in house that. You know, it's you know, it, it, by having the rights, by having the characters in different studios, the things that make the comic book so much fun. When a, a you know, a Spider-Man will interact with a, a Captain America or a Thor or that sort of thing, and to not be able to do that uh, with the films is actually kind of maddening. And you know, I, again, to sort of jump ahead here, uh, there was David Mazel who came into uh, Marvel in 2007. And, you know, as he's walking in the door, the studio is getting ready to sell off the film rights to both Thor and Captain America. And he's the one who, you know, goes to Ike Perlmutter and goes, look, you know, we have to stop doing this. We have to stop selling the characters off to different studios. You know, our, our strength is in these matchups, you know, that, that we need to, first of all, we need to own our own movies. You know, we, you know, we need to make them in the style of, you know, real, you know, what we do here at Marvel, the sort of storytelling we do at Marvel. Uh, and, and more to the point, we need to create this universe whereby, you know, characters can come in from other movies and that's what would, will make our movie special. And to give Ike credit, he got behind the, the the idea, and they, you know, Marvel reached out and set up a deal with Paramount Studios. And uh, what Marvel wanted to do was do ten movies. Uh, Paramount was only willing to do six, um, but you know that that's you know that was the the place where they started. So that was Iron Man, and you know Iron Man, which was uh, you know put in production and eventually reached. May 2nd of 2008. And what was fascinating about that is that, you know, again, you have to be an old fart like me to remember that when they initially announced the casting and it was Robert Downey Jr., you know, everyone in Hollywood was kind of like, are you crazy? The guy who's been to jail twice and the, the guy with the drug problem and, and, you know, but it, it's, it was a John Favreau who recognized so it's like, look, Tony Stark is damaged and you know, let's face it robert downey jr at least for the decade previous to to making the iron man films you know had his own taste of being damaged you know he, he did lots of self-inflicted wounds so 
in a lot of ways, he was the absolute perfect guy. And more to the point, in much the same way that, you know, when George Lucas was trying to figure out how to tell the Star Wars saga, the Journal of the Wills, and he went up and down this giant story that he'd written and eventually decided, okay, the new a new hope. You know, this this particular point in the story is the easiest way in to the world. And you know, that's what they did with Iron Man. You know, the, 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 though again, you get that little taste of of Nick for Nick Fury, you know, at the end with with Samuel Jackson and you know, let's not forget about bringing, you know, Agent Colson, uh, who, you know, just, you know, I, I, I love the connective tissue there. But, you know, the, the thing that, that strikes me in the, that, that's right off the bat, if you think about it, Iron Man hits theaters in May 2nd, 2008. And, you know, again, a lot of discipline. Again, again, they had a very, very tiny budget for the time. It was just $140 million for a huge effects picture. Um, but as a direct result, uh, you know, that, that it, it makes $318 million domestically, which is, you know, that, that, that's a huge amount for going into the summer. Overseas, $266 million for a total of 585 And if you understand Hollywood math, uh, you're supposed to make three times your production costs before you come into profit. So, you know, right off the, the bat, they had a hit film. But just, again, just six weeks later, what goes into theaters but The Incredible Hulk? And, uh, you know, look, The Hulk, the, the Edward Norton film, didn't do as well as the, bo- you know, as well at the box office, perhaps it should. But it was the scene at the end of the film that, that really makes it stand out in the, the history of the cinematic Marvel cinematic universe, that, that post credit scene where, you know, it's, uh, you know, the, the, the Thunderbolt character, you know, William Hurt is playing, you know, in the bar, you know, sort of commiserating that once again, he's, he's failed to, to cage and capture the Hulk and who comes through the door, you know, but, but, you know, Robert Downey Jr.'s Tony Stark. And it's like, Wait a minute! That's from a Paramount movie. That those, are, you know, that's a character from a Paramount movie coming into a Universal film, and it's like, well, yeah, but these are both films that are being produced by Marvel Studios, so we can do this. And to have that, you know, that whole, you know, the the, the Samuel Jackson thing from the tail end scene of the original Iron Man—that you're part of a bigger world now—and you know, we're getting a band together, we're we're getting a group together. Um, you know, just this whole notion of, wow, this is a bigger world. This is, this is all going to add up to something. And, you know, just to watch that sort of march forward. Um, now mind you, again, this is 2008. And as we all know, um, you know, come August of 2009, the Walt Disney company buys Marvel for $4 billion. And, if you talk with the folks at Disney, one of the reasons they did this is that, you know, you know, look, Disney owns the princess universe. They've got every little girl from approximately four to say nine locked up, you know, that they've got that great piece of straight pipe, but little boys, they didn't have, you know, in fact, what's kind of interesting is if you think that, about them going on to buy uh, Lucasfilm in 2012, 
<laughs> you know, and it's just the whole notion of, you know, doubling down on the little boy market with, with all the Star Wars toys and that sort of thing. But, but that was the thinking at Disney that this, you know, this will give us the raw material to do, you know, and, and more to the point, they're looking at what, um, what Marvel already has in motion. They're looking at the amount of money that Paramount's made off of, um, the original Iron Man and they, they get to, to take a look at the dailies for, um, you know, or the work that had been done to that point for Iron Man 2, which, you know, kind of a tough project to take over ownership of Marvel during, because I'm sure you've heard the stories about how, you know, Iron Man 2 kind of got away from Favreau and the budget. You know, they ended up spending uh, $200 million uh, producing that one. And, you know, it was after Disney came on board, you know, it's like, all right, we, you know, that's the last time that happens. You know, we don't. You know, we, we're willing to spend two hundred million dollars if that's the budget that we started with. We're not willing to spend two hundred million dollars if it gets, you know, it's a, a hundred and fifty million dollar movie that gets out of control. Um, but yeah, that that so. Um, but but what fa- fascinates me is that during this exact same period, you know, where here you have the Marvel films that you know Paramount is still doing at this point. And, you know, Disney now has ownership of Marvel Entertainment. But, you know, this is during the time when Sony and Columbia actually pulled the plug on Spider-Man 4 that Sam Raimi was going to make. Um, and I, I'm assuming you, you know the stories associated with, with uh, Spider-Man 3, right? Yeah, the, uh, Raimi was forced to include villains that he didn't like uh, for a start. Yeah, well... Yeah, well, uh, well, that was the thing. I mean, when you talk, I, I was lucky enough to get a chance to talk with with Sam Raimi uh, when uh, he was working on Oz the Great and Powerful, and and he he talked about the fact. The thing is that you know, it's like, look, you're playing with somebody else's money, and that you know, it was one thing when, like I said, when when the original Spider Man, it had a budget of 139 million dollars, and it, it makes 800. Uh, you know, $821 million worldwide. So Sam is a hero. Okay. So now jump ahead to production on Spider-Man two. And now the budget has again, crept up to $200 million. And, but the, you know, the problem is that the box office, after you factor, you know, it, it both domestic and worldwide in that they only make, and again, it's, it's amazing to use this term. They only made, Seven hundred and thirty-eight million dollars, you know, worldwide. But that's still almost a forty million dollar step down from the first film, and that really gave the folks at the studio some concern. So that's why they were that much more hands-on with Spider-Man Three and sort of vetoing his story choices. In fact, it, it's kind of intriguing for me that he wanted to use the Vulture in um, Spider-Man Three and. You know, if you look at what's happening with Homecoming, you know, we have the Vulture. We've got, you know, uh, only with Michael Keaton playing the character. But, um, but yeah, Remy was like, look, they were willing to offer me, you know, a, a budget of $258 million. And, you know, and, and when it's, when they're paying that much, they do get to, they do get to have some input. And the problem was that it was like Venom, you know, it just, it was like, Anybody who was a true fan of Marvel knew that it's like, wow, that's, you know, that that's not at the point of the story that you're telling. 
you know, the, the, the story of Peter Parker, this isn't a time when that character would naturally come in and, and more to the point, it'll sort of distort the film. And, and that's what in fact happened. Um, so, you know, it's just ironic to me that, you know, so they had already announced that when Spider-Man four was coming out in 2010 and then, you know, just pull, you know, cause again, Raimi wasn't willing to work that way again. So he, he sort of politely, you know, stepped back from the project and then it became kind of a scary situation because the way the deal film rights deal was written that unless uh, Sony Columbia had a Spider-Man project in active development, the rights would revert to the owner. In this case, it would be Disney Studios. And so they, they actually rushed to get uh, The Amazing Spider-Man uh, ready for release in July of 2012. And, uh, you know, for a lot of reasons, mostly because it was an IMAX and 3D, it, it did do reasonably well i mean you know again but it's it's it still wound up costing just a wee bit less than uh spider-man 3 the raimi film that instead of 258 million it was 230 million but but you know the same thing it's just sort of like so and, and the irony is that it actually makes less than uh you know the then spider-man 2 uh you know it, it and it's just sort of like, uh, you know, it, and, and meanwhile, of course, you know, here, you know, that very same year, I mean, it literally three months before that on May 4th, we have the Avengers come out and the Avengers so changes the game when it comes to, um, you know, to, to the, the superhero movie market. I mean, think about it I, again, you know, Disney puts up $220 million to make this thing. Joss Whedon. Um, you know, delivers the goods, and this make this movie worldwide makes one point five billion dollars. All right, it's not just a success; it's a blockbuster, and it, you know, and obviously that gets the attention of Warner Brothers, that you know, the the folks at DC. Um, and but you know, I I think the thing is, what amazes me is that people look at the amount of money that these movies make, but they don't look at the discipline that, um, that, that actually goes on at, um, at, at, at Marvel. I mean, for example, if you, you look at the films that led up to the Avengers, you had Thor in 2011, you had Captain America also in 2011, both of those films were in a relatively tight box for big effects pictures. Uh, Thor had a budget of $150 million. Captain America had a budget of $140 million. And what, what's fascinating to me is that on the heels of the huge monstrous success of, um, of the Avengers, you know, you would think, okay, you know, that's, so they're going to go nuts. That you know, you know, in effect, for Iron Man three, which was really the the first film after uh, Avengers, the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, to hit. Um, it originally was budgeted with a, with one hundred and forty million dollars, but both Disney and Marvel Studios reached out to Shane Black, the director, and said, "Look, we know that everyone's going to come into Iron Man three expecting." 
you know, something that's going to be the equivalent of the Avengers. And that's just not fair. So how about this? We'll give you an additional $60 million to add some additional action sequences. So, you know, it's, it's, it feels like it's on par with, you know, uh, with the Avengers <laughs> and black was like, you know, this is kind of a good problem to have. Like here, here's more money. Go find ways to make your film better. You know, normally in the film industry, it's the other way around. Like you're over budget, you know, cut a scene or, you know, we're cutting your budget a week before you go into production and you figure out how to shave $20 million off the budget. But, um, anyway, to step forward, to look at, um, uh, you know, the, the, the follow-up films to that, uh, Thor, the dark world or Captain America, the winter soldier, both of those cases, uh, yeah, the budget's a little higher than, you know, Thor from 2011 and, and the first Avenger, but it's only 170 million and both films. It's literally, it's like here, you have $170 million and we're bumping up the budget a little bit. Cause now everyone's going to be looking backwards and going, how does it compare to the Avengers and how does it compare to Iron Man three? Um, and, and then when you look at the films that followed this, where it's, Ant-Man for 2015 or Doctor Strange uh, just last year, they actually were deliberately uh, cheaper than um, Dark World and Winter Soldier. Um, Ant-Man, and if you can believe it, given the amount of effects for that film, that film came in for $130 million. And and Doctor Strange, you know, again, you know, at, a, at effects extravaganza, um, that was 165, which is amazing for um, when you consider that it was nominated for an Oscar for special effects. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In fact, that that's I I, I got the talk with uh, Stefan Cerati, the the head of effects uh, supervisor in that film, and it was was a fascinating conversation because he said, you know, you know, this is the first time we were doing magic in the Marvel universe, so you know, there was a lot of pressure there. And they're also the understanding was like, look, whatever we decide on for the look of Doctor Strange has to lend itself to being walked out to other Marvel movies. Because face it, that's the the gimmick of the cinematic universe, that these things actually do, you know, these worlds connect and, you know, that that it's, you know, not going to be all that long till Stephen Strange. I mean, in fact. The end scene showed him interacting with Thor, and you know there 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 are other Avengers he'll be chatting with soon enough. Um, but yeah, it's just uh, for me, it's it's the discipline and it's the notion of you know creating this whole world and understanding how things link together, and, and more to the point that you know setting up situations that will pay off uh, two, three, four, five films down the line. Um, Anyway, so I, I don't know. It, for me, it's it's I, being a nuts and bolts guy, being a, a you know a fan of back of house and that sort of stuff. Um, you know, it's just it's been fascinating to watch now that Disney and Marvel have joined forces just to see how you know they're kind of you know melding their two worlds together. I mean, just what's been going on in the Disney theme parks, um, you know, over the last, you know, six, seven years. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's amazing to see that now they're, they're starting to move into those parks, obviously with, uh, mission breakout at California. Um, but I, I was going to talk about the, the theme parks. Obviously they sold the rights off for the theme parks as well. Um, 
And obviously, we've got quite a few listeners that obviously listen to this after dark as well. So, talk me through the the deals that have happened with the with the theme parks. Obviously, I remember going to Universal Studios in Hollywood back in the mid two thousands and seeing the the Avengers, and I'm thinking, well, that's strange. And then obviously, the the deals have happened after that that now Disney own them, and they they've moved out of Universal Studios Hollywood. Obviously, that deal expired, but it's still obviously on. On this coast, it's on the on the east coast that they still can't technically use these characters because Universal have the rights to them. So let's talk through through the ins and outs of that. Obviously, it, it's brought up all the time. Well, you know, I mean, I, I actually, it's 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 so funny you, you mentioned Universal Studios Hollywood because um, <laughs> they made a decision uh, coming out of the 2008 holiday season. Um, you know, the, the, the budget for the parks, uh, in regard to walk around characters, you know, and it's the whole notion of, well, you know, we have Woody Woodpecker and we have, you know, the Frankenstein monster and we also have these Marvel characters, but you know, it's like, we don't have a Marvel attraction here. In fact, they used to have the, the Marvel mania restaurant out in what was the equivalent of uh city walk, but that had closed a number of years earlier. And, you know, they Again, they didn't have the Islands of Adventure with the Amazing Spider-Man ride or the whole coaster, that sort of thing. So a decision was made coming out of the 2008 holiday season in early 2009 not to renew the West Coast rights for the Marvel characters. And to this day, Universal kicks itself because it's like with the language of that, that there was a 50 mile, uh, you know, well, I mean, it, it, if you drill down into the actual uh, licensing agreement, you can you can find it online uh, from I want to say 1994. Um, I, you know, there were all of these thresholds that you know that that you know that it, there's you know this what types of Marvel attractions can be built 50 miles away from the park, 250 miles away from the park. You know, east of the Mississippi, I mean, it just there's this very definitive, you know, demarcation points. And because they didn't opt um, to do any of that, they then negated that by not opting to renew the, the walk-around character rights. That gave Disney a clean slate in California. Um, you know, and as you mentioned, in uh, Florida, it's a very, very different situation. I mean, Disney does do, uh, you know, I'm sure you've seen, for example, the, the, the skinned monorails that, that went around the parks um, for Avengers and Iron Man 3 and that sort of thing. But w- when I say around the parks, the, the, the rule for the Marvelized monorail was that it could only operate in, on the resort loop, the, the loop that went around Seven Seas Lagoon um, because it never ent- actually enters the theme park. It, it, it comes out to, you know, outside of the Magic Kingdom, but never actually goes into the park. Um, you know, that, that's one of the reasons why it was never allowed that particular, any monorail that was skinned with the Marvel characters was never allowed to, to run over to Epcot because once it entered Epcot, it was inside of a, a theme park, and that negated uh, the master licensing agreement, and that meant 
NBC Universal's lawyers could have descended on Disney like wolves. And it's like, well, that'll be a fine pal. Um, but yeah, that, that, uh, all right. So again, just let's do the timeline here. So August, 2009, Disney acquires the characters for, uh, you know, uh, $4 billion. And there's this kind of lull in the parks while Disney's attorneys, um, sort of drill down into the deal. In fact, uh, the more interesting aspect of this deal is according to the language, um, in the original master licensing agreement, uh, Marvel entertainment was allowed to, because they were getting uh, a certain percentage of merchandise sales and food sales in the Marvel superhero Island area. Um, they were allowed to look at attendance levels and overall ticket sales at the park, just to sort of make sure that, you know, you know, everything was on the up and up. And so of course with Disney buying Marvel entertainment, this now meant that in theory, you know, folks who work at Disney parks and resorts could now have hard information about, you know, you know, what, uh, it, you know, at the universal parks in Florida, what their attendance levels were, what, what, how much money they were making. And, um, it, that became one of the, the more interesting moments where both companies agreed. It's like, look, we have to build a firewall here. You know, we can't, it just, it's, it's not a good thing to, you know, I mean, as much as Disney actually wanted that information, they didn't want to put themselves in, you know, a situation where there would be all this litigation that would, would forbid them from, uh, taking advantage of the Marvel characters and, and merchandising them and all that. So it was like Disney immediately agreed to put sort of this firewall, you know, that that information will be known to a person at Marvel that doesn't necessarily have to share it with corporate Disney. They just have to, you know, if we ask them, do the numbers jibe, that person has to say yes. They don't have to reveal what those numbers are. Um, but anyway, during this whole period, so just so – Mark, you know, Universal sort of gets Disney's attention, you know, because Disney's kind of hoping, well, you, you'll you'll sell us the theme park rights, right? You know, I mean, it doesn't make sense for you to have these these characters. Um, and in fact, I guess for a time, there was a discussion at Universal about, well, all right, if we did sell off, um, you know, if we did sell Disney the the uh, theme park rights back to the Marvel characters, what would we do with Superhero Island? And as it turns out, um, Universal, through their theatrical arm, the the, um, the Broadway Entertainment, they're the folks who are producing the uh, the long running was you know Oz musical Wicked. Yeah. And so the think thinking was okay. So we shut down Superhero Island, uh, and we retheme it to Oz. And so, you know, for example, that would mean the amazing Spider-Man trackless vehicle. You know, you could do, a, you know, sort of a, a journey through Oz attraction on that. And they were thinking that uh, if you looked at, you know, you have the Hulk coaster, which is green. You know, you could turn that into the Wicked Witch of the West coaster. And you have the Storm spinny cups thing. And, you know, literally, it's, it's like, that's Storm. No, that's the tornado that takes Dorothy to Oz. I mean, there were all these these pieces they were actually considering doing, but, but in the end, you know, what universal noticed is that as the Marvel cinematic universe films began getting up out of the ground, there was so much more interest 
interacting with these characters and more to the point merchandise sales and in these Marvel superhero Island stores went through the roof, especially when they began offering the toys that were actually tied to the movies that were in the theaters. And it's like, well, why are we getting out of this business? Why are we giving this up? Let's just stick with it. And so, you know, um, that's kind of why, um, you know, in uh, March of 2012, um, Islands of Adventure introduced a brand new version of um, the, uh, you know, the Amazing Spider-Man ride where, where they'd, um, they'd reprogrammed the scoops. So they got an extra second or two both leaving and entering scenes. So you got more story. They also swapped out all of the projectors for... 4K high def film uh, that that was then projected uh, with Ifatec uh, 3D projection systems, and it, you wound up being a so much better experience. But it was just sort of you know it put Disney on notice the effect of you know they're spending money on this stuff. They're not going to give it up anytime soon if they're spending this sort of money on it. And just last year, again to sort of underline, circle, and indent that um, you know you had them you know pull down the the track of the old Hulk coaster and, you know, bring in a brand new track, uh, which made it that much smoother, uh, changed out the soundtrack, did an amazing uh, job with uh, redoing the pre-show area, new lighting package, but, you know, brought that back in August of last year. And it's just sort of like, here they are, you know, we are going to hang on to these characters. They are, you know, on, on <laughs> you know, that, that just letting Disney know that, that this is not going to change anytime soon. So, um, so you know, ad, as a direct result, Disney really had to sort of address. Uh, it's like, all right, if we're going to do something with these characters, it's probably going to have to be in California. So, first things first, um, they they decided they you know grab some space upstairs in the interventions exhibit at Disneyland park. And they created, uh, and again, remember, remember that what they were showing off in interventions was sort of, you know, the future of, of homemaking, you know, they had the dream house there. They had, uh, you know, the latest in television technology and that sort of thing. So basically what they did is they created a space upstairs where it was iron man tech, where supposedly it was Stark industries had been, had bought space and uh, interventions and you could go up and view the hall of armor where you could see the various different, you know, Iron Man suits. And um, later that same year, uh, we saw the, the Marvel characters make their first appearance on the Disney cruise line. In fact, on the Disney magic in that boat's oceaneer club, uh, that scenario for, uh, three to 12 year olds, you know, sort of, you know, go there, get out of mom and dad's hair for a couple hours. But, you know, this is where you could go and have an encounter with Captain America. Um, and, and again, uh, later that same month, uh, Disney sort of doubled down on, uh, you know, the second floor of, um, interventions, uh, right across the way from the Iron Man tech exhibit. We, we got a, Treasures of Asgard exhibit where, you know, you could, you could, you know, walk across the Bifrost and, you know, have a meet and greet with Thor. In fact, one of the, the more fun, um, aspects of this meet and greet is that, you know, they, they had the cast member dressed as Thor who was sort of wielding Thor's hammer and he 
then set it down and then challenge people to try to lift it. And, you know, it's, I, I'm not going to reveal how they did it, but you know, it, it, yes, it does involve magnets. Um, but yeah, that they, they would, you know, you know, people got quite a chuckle out of watching people stress and strain, trying to lift up the, um, you know, they, they hammer and then they just have the cast cast member casually reach over and grab it and twirl it around. And, uh, it was great fun, but, and then just uh, five months after that, uh, you know, sort of time to, uh, winter soldier, uh, March of 2014, uh, the rest of the floor, uh, upstairs at interventions becomes captain America, the living legend and symbol of courage exhibit and same thing. So you have, um, you now can go upstairs and tour Tony Stark's armor exhibit and you can get do a meet and greet with Thor or a meet and greet with Captain America. And um uh, about this same time or same year, uh August of, of 2014, Disney did an after hours party, a, a hard ticket event at Disney's Hollywood Studios called Villains Unleashed. And um uh, this is about you know, this is about three weeks after uh, Guardians of the Galaxy is opened in theaters. And they had, they featured as part of this hard ticket after hours event, a uh, thing called the Awesome Mixtape Dance Party. And, you know, you know, it, and only people who had been to the movie and knew about, you know, the sort of the mixtape that, that, you know, uh, Peter had had. And it's like, you don't suppose they're going to have characters from guardians <laughs> of the galaxy there. And, and so people went to the party and sure enough, here's star Lord and Gamora. Here's cast members, you know, doing the face character bit as those two characters. Um, and supposedly this was kind of a trial balloon by Disney legal because by this point, and again, we are, you know, uh, four years into, uh, you know, Disney owning Marvel at this point, And they've been up and down, in and out of that master licensing agreement with universal. And it's like, you know, there's nothing in here that mentions the guardians of the galaxy characters. You know, I bet we can bring these into the parks and let's just try it at this one event and see how universal reacts. And universal does nothing. Cause it's just sort of like, you know, they, I guess, you know, the NBC universal attorneys immediately whipped out their contract. Like, yep. 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 It's like, Yep, there's nothing in here about the Guardians of the Galaxy <laughs> characters, so you know I guess we can't make a stink about that. But um, anyway, by this point, uh, we jump ahead to March of uh, 2015, and Interventions at Disneyland actually closes uh, to make way for the Star Wars Launch Bay, which will be opening in uh, in the fall of, of that same year to sort of support the release of. Star Wars, you know, episode seven, the force awakens. So what ends up happening is that, um, the characters now get pushed off to Disney Hollywood studios. Uh, you know, in fact, literally they, they, they stop performing one day indoors, uh, you know, at the, what is now known as the, uh, the Tomorrowland Expo Center. And the very next day, they're on the streets of Hollywoodland over at Disney Hollywood Studios, uh, meeting and greeting folks there. And um, ab about this same time at Disneyland Paris, the Spider-Man uh, starts meeting folks at Disney Studio, uh, Walt Disney Studios Paris, the, the, 
the theme, the movie theme theme park that's next door to uh, Disneyland Paris. And, you know, it just, <laughs> what's fascinating to me is that this came on the back of that deal that uh, Disney made, um, Disney and Marvel Studios, let, let, let's be clear here, made with Sony, you know, to the effect of, you know, clearly, because after the uh, the second uh, Amazing Spider-Man movie, when that came out and really underperformed at the box office in, uh, hang on, and, uh, yeah, that's May of 2014, um, they decided, look, let us help you find the new Spider-Man. And more to the point, let us introduce him in Civil War so people will be excited about the character. And then we'll go to the brand new, you know, Spider-Man movie that Sony and Columbia mix. And, and you know, and as part of that deal, um, Sony, you know, because it, it's still, it allowed them to hang on to the the movie rights to make a Spider-Man movie. And they're like, sure, right? you know, if, if, you know, one of the light rights we lose during this is the ability to, you know, to put Spider-Man in any Disney theme park that's not Walt Disney World. It's like, sure, that's that's fine. So, um, so he starts making appearances at, um, you know, he's also winds up, uh, making appearances in Disney's, uh, Disney California Adventures Hollywood Land. Um, anyway, again, we mentioned, um, you know, um, uh, you know, we talked about the, the Hulk thing, uh, you know, that, that the, the Hulk coaster closes in September of 2015 comes back online August of the following year with the new system. And, uh, you know, and, and uh, just a few months after that, um, the Disney cruise line begins offering a Marvel day at sea. We're, we're literally one day out of your cruise instead of going upstairs and meeting Mickey and Minnie or, you know, Jack Sparrow from the parts of the Caribbean movies. Uh, it's all Marvel characters, and um, you know, and, and in fact, uh, starting just two months from now, we're, we're actually we're three months from now. We're recording this on uh, March twenty fifth, two thousand seventeen. Um, the Disney Fantasy is going to be opening a Marvel Superhero Academy experience um, that will. You know, but instead of meeting with Captain America, um, you're going to be able to, you know, get some FaceTime with Stephen Strange. Um, but I guess the, the the thing we really need to talk about is what opened at Hong Kong Disneyland back in January of this year. The, uh, the Iron Man experience, which is really sort of the next gen of Disney's Star Tours attraction, which in itself was updated in 2011, 2012 to, to be 3d. And you know, it, that that's, you know, so again, it's, it's a simulator based attraction with a 3d element, uh, very much like the star Wars experience. But what, what's kind of intriguing is that if you understand that the guardians of the galaxy mission breakout, uh, change out retheming of tower of terror, uh, that will be opening, May 27th of this year, uh, that's the very first component of a huge uh, Marvel land that will be going into Disney California Adventure. In fact, uh, based on the, the plan that's been shared with me, 
Hollywood land basically goes away. In fact, the, for example, the, the Hyperion theater where right now frozen, the musical is being staged. Um, they hope frozen, the musical will continue to play for another five to 10 years. But what's going to happen is that's going to go from being a theater that's supposed to look like it's on Hollywood Boulevard to a theater that looks like it's in, you know, sort of Tony Stark's version of Manhattan. Uh, and this whole side of the park will become Marvel themed attractions. Um, I, with the opening of the star Wars experience at Disneyland park. I mean, obviously when you have an entire land of star Wars themed attractions, you're no longer going to need star tours, uh, to be in Tomorrowland. So they're actually going to shut down that attraction, take those four simulators that are in the old journey into, uh, or excuse me, uh, journey through the space building. And, um, they're going to take those over to, uh, DCA, uh, pu- putting them in behind where the, the new Guardians of the Galaxy Mission ba- Breakout attraction is going to be. And so you're going to get a stateside version of the Iron Man experience, only instead of having to go into downtown Hong Kong and, and battle, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the folks from, uh, Hydra, you're going to end up going, flying down into Los Angeles and, and battling the streets there. Uh, you know, there's also, you may be aware of the coaster that they built at Shanghai Disneyland for Tron. Yeah. Uh, the current plan is that that coaster will come stateside and, and actually two versions There's uh, one that, that will stick with the Tron theming that will go to Disney's uh, magic kingdom at Walt Disney world. It, it's looks to be the big new attraction uh, that they'll have up and running in time for that uh, theme parks or the, the entire resort's 50th anniversary in 2021. But in California um, it's going to be, Captain America themed and it's basically going to run uh, pretty much from you know where the Muppets uh, theater is right now uh, around and over um, the theater that Frozen is presented in and then sort of curve out back toward um, Guardians of the Galaxy but if all goes according to plan this is going to be a massive Marvel themed land that will basically cozy right up against Cars Land at, at that theme park. In fact, that there is some very serious discussion about uh, the, the a Bugs Land, the the, the kitty friendly area of uh, a, a Disney California Adventure that that's obviously themed to the 1998's A Bugs Life from Pixar. But that just going away as well. That that. You know, they basically the only two pieces that are supposedly safe out of this whole thing are the Hyperion Theater, so that can continue to present Frozen, and then again the rethemed uh, Guardians uh, Tower of Terror, you know, soon to be the Guardians of the Galaxy Mission Breakout attraction, uh, and then everything else, you know, is either repurposed or flattened. Uh, to make way for a pretty marvelous Marvel-themed land at Disney's California Adventure. Hmm. I'd seen rumours that the the Marvel land was coming to DCA, and I have to be honest, I've kind of planned a trip back to Los Angeles just for it. So 
Uh, fingers crossed that that all goes ahead. The last thing I wanted to bring up, and it's going back to the to the MCU side, uh, the split between the TV units and the the film units, um, the falling mm-hmm. out of um, Kevin Feige and uh, Ike Perlmutter, it's caused a, a massive split between the fans as well. I think with the uh, the fact that it was always, it's all connected, and then all of a sudden, it just wasn't. Well, I, you know, let's be honest here. I mean, when, when you think about that first season of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., and they, they had that one episode that sort of touched on, you know, artifacts and that sort of thing from uh, Thor The Dark World, um, it, it kind of became obvious after a while. I, I think they had that one appearance by Samuel Jackson uh, on the show, but it just it became obvious between the different time schedules and the different budgetary needs that there just wasn't going to be the um, you know the, the sort of link up that that people had planned on. And in fact, um, you know, I think for a lot of, of the true Marvel fans, it kind of broke our heart when just after two seasons, you know, Agent Carter got canceled. I mean, look, Agent Carter was, was sort of always intended to be kind of a stopgap, you know, so that, uh, you know, Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. would actually have, you know, uh, you know, wouldn't have to deal with the dec- declining ratings that sometimes come with reruns. Uh, also to be honest, given as, as action and effects heavy as the show as it is, it was a help just to have a, you know, an eight week off, so to speak, that they could catch up and get, you know, episodes prepared for the next, um, you know, the, the second half of the season. But, um, the models changed. I mean, if you look at what's going on with Netflix, whether it's, you know, you know, when Daredevil debuted in April of 2015, and, you know, was embraced the way it was, uh, you know, I mean, that's kind of, you know, that became the new model. I mean, you know, so we got Jessica Jones came out in November of that same year and, you know, was equally embraced largely because, again, because it, it, it was built for net, Netflix. If you wanted to binge all of, you know, those episodes at once, you could do that. Uh, you know, Luke Cage, you know, met with the same level of enthusiasm when it debuted in September of 2016. And I, it's been kind of interesting to watch the pushback on Iron Fist. Have you been following that at all? Or Yeah, I have. I, I finished the show on Wednesday. Uh, or th- no, it was and? Thursday. I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed it far more than I did Luke Cage. Really? Um, okay. Yeah, I wasn't a huge fan of Luke Cage. I have to be honest, and and to be fair, mm-hmm. I was more of a fan of Jessica Jones as well than I was of Luke mm-hmm. Cage, and and I don't see why it's got such criticism for Iron Fist at all. Well, you know, I mean, it's just it's kind of the world we live in here. You know, in fact, it's you know, for example, you know, Disney's dealing with sort of the same issue with. You know, on the heels of the success of its new Beauty and the Beast live action, uh, we're just a couple of months out now from the start of shooting of a live action version of Mulan. And, you know, the first script that was written for that was that, you know, they were going to have basically an entirely Asian cast for that movie. But, you know, the first script, you know, sort of put a new tweak on the story in that. You know, she had an, an Anglo lover, you know, that, that you know, a, a, you know, somebody who'd wandered into China and, 
you know, that, that, you know, and, and it was just, you know, uh, I believe it was an, an Englishman who'd lost his way, you know, and just somehow ended up in China. And it was like, you know, the people in the studio are reading the script and it's like, are you out of your minds? You know, it's just sort of like, we're good. We're trying to get this movie to play in every movie theater in China. You know, that's, you know, and the notion that you're going to make her, you know, her, her love interest, a, a, an Englishman. It's like, no, 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 kill us. So, um, you know, that's, that's kind of what Disney's or maybe Marvel's dealing with Iron Fist. It's just sort of like, that's not who the character was in the comic and why you decided to go this way. Um, I, look, that's the other thing that I think for me, what's interesting about the whole Netflix, uh, episode is that, you know, face it, you know, the characters that were picked here were all to march to the defenders, which, you know, now is going to debut in the fall of this year. And, and, you know, we're going to get, you know, uh, you know, that the Luke Cage and Jessica and Daredevil and Iron Fist all together, you know, you know, battling in New York. And, um, and, and at the same time, I mean, have you been following what, what the plan for the Inhumans at ABC? Yeah. It's very much changed by the look of it. It's not, following the <laughs> the story from the comics that's for sure oh no 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 definitely not but it just uh, have you heard about this this imax gimmick yeah the I mean, first two the episodes no- yeah yeah i mean that's you know it, again it just it's fascinating when you think about there's a whole generation of people these days who just watch you know television on their phones and, you know, the whole notion of we're going to bury the needle in the other direction. You want to go see these episodes as they were intended. Go to your local IMAX theater, catch the two episodes. And then if, if, if uh, as I understand it, that throughout the season, there are going to be these action sequences in the, in the television series that will just suddenly cut to IMAX. And it just sort of like, you know, really, if I'm sitting at home watching it on my wide screen, okay, that's one thing. But if I'm sitting there with my phone, yeah. you know, and, and, you know, catching up on it while I'm on the bus, it's like, uh, okay. So, I don't know. It's it's a very, very interesting time to be a, a Marvel fan and, and especially to watch a Marvel working in concert with a Disney and understanding you know, the very things that a, a Disney can bring to the table, you know, uh, the might of, you know, their promotional arm or for that matter, you know, uh, in fact, it, it's been kind of interesting just over the last year or two, uh, because face it, when, when Disney cut the deal uh, back in August of 2009, there were all these pre-existing licensing deals that Marvel had already signed in dozens of directions that Disney had to wait, you know, to lapse before they could actually start, you know, putting out toys the way they wanted to with the vendors they wanted to. Um, so, you know, we're, we're seeing lots of, of interesting new collectibles and lots of new interesting action figures and that sort of thing. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very interesting time to be, um, you know, in the Marvel world and, you know, and, and, you know, and, and kind of the one-two punch that's coming with Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Did, did you hear about the test scores on that? Yeah, that it tested at 100%. Yeah, and, that, is- and again, you know, that never happens. You know, that, that, you know, an audience loves a movie that much that everybody in the audience loved it. Um, but yeah, the, 
the one-two punch of that movie opens and then we get, you know, the, the theme park attraction. I mean, you know, this is actually something that John Lasseter, the, the, the head of Pixar and, and Walt Disney Animation Studios, he's dreamed of his entire life. You know, just, it's just like, you know, this is what I've always wanted. You know, the movie comes out and, you know, like the, you know, within a week you can go to Disneyland and the attractions there with the characters that you just saw in the movie. Um, and, you know, and, and again, provided that this is embraced the way that Imagineering hope it, it, it is, um, you're going to see that park, you know, like a, a third of that park become just Marvel attractions. And, you know, in, in fact, it's the, the there's a, you know, and I guess this is a good point to sort of bring the show to the close here, but it's going to so change that theme park that people at the Disneyland resort right now are talking about, okay, so, you know, we're coming up on Disneyland's, um, you know, if you can believe it, it's 75th anniversary. Uh, that will be in 2030. Uh, yes. and, and yeah. believe it or not, that's, that's not all that far away in, in theme park parlance. In fact, you know, for example, you know, I'm talking with folks at, at Walt Disney World right now, and they are hard charging toward that park's 50th anniversary. And for them, I mean, that's 2021, but for them, it's like, geez, that's that's only four years away. We have no time left. We really have to hurry. So, um, but the the thinking is that for Disneyland's 75th anniversary, one of the things they should probably do out ahead of that, understanding that by the time all of this Marvel stuff comes in, and it will take uh, about 10 years to get everything in place. Uh, so, you know, realistically, that's 2027 or thereabouts. Out ahead of the Disneyland 75th anniversary, it's like, well, maybe we should look at changing the name of Disney's California Adventure Park because there's going to be so little left in the park that actually celebrates really for real California. And so it's like, should we be looking at an, for a name for this park that sort of recognizes the fact that a third of it, you know, one third is Pixar, one third of it is Marvel. And it's like, you know, kind of like what they're doing in Florida right now uh, with Disney's Hollywood studios. They are, uh, they're looking to change the name of that park, uh, rebrand it, out ahead of the opening of the Star Wars experience in 2019. And it looks like that park will just be known as Disney's Hollywood adventure going forward because it's like, you know, between the, you know, like tower of terror ride and, you know, the, the roller coasters and everything for Star Wars experience, it's, it's going to be adventure, you know, very adventure based park. And that seems to be one of the early names for, you know, the, the Marvel heavy version of Disney's California adventure, they just drop the California and it becomes Disney adventure park. So, right. uh, I didn't, I honestly didn't see that, that coming. I knew the Hollywood studios name was, was likely to change, but I wasn't aware of anything that, that California adventure was going to change its name. Uh, well, think um, about it. I mean, if you, you, you know, uh, honestly, if you, once you put Marvel in there, you lose Hollywood land. Uh, you've got cars land, which really, you know, that's actually the American Southwest. That's not California anymore. Um, you, you've, you know, the only thing that's sort of California 
is Buena Vista Street. And, you know, and that's only kind of represents what Los Angeles was like when Walt arrived at, you know, out in Southern California in 1923. And that's pretty much it. I mean, the, the boardwalk area is sort of still California, but, you know, uh, uh, you know, but that's got Toy Story there and Little Mermaid and, you know, the giant Mickey wheel. And it's just sort of like, where is the California in, in, you know, California Adventure? I mean, I guess you could say the Redwood Creek Adventure area. Um, but, you know, that, <laughs> how long is that going to survive? So, yeah. So, on that note, I, I'd just like to thank you again, Jim. Uh, wonderful hours episode that we've got. Um, lots of new information, and obviously looking back at the history of of Marvel and the the deal deals with Disney. So, so thank you, Jim. Um, on that note, uh, you can find us on all the normal social media networks: Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Um, we'll be back next month. Um, we'll actually tying into this. We'll be reviewing Iron Fist next month. Um, and hopefully the whole team will be here for that. Uh, I think everybody's more or less finished it. Craig, with his shift work, possibly hasn't, but I think I've definitely finished it. Josh has definitely finished it. I think Tony's more or less done, Um, so we should all be on the show next month. So on that note, thank you again for listening. If you haven't subscribed, go ahead and subscribe to us, and thank you for listening.